So Psalm 5. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence, I bow down toward your holy temple. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they tell lies. Declare them guilty, O Lord. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favour, as with a shield. Lord, we just thank you for your word. And we now pray, Lord, for Rob as he comes. Lord, that your spirit may be upon him. And Lord, that he may give a right understanding of that passage from Scripture. Amen. Some time ago, when the pastor and I were talking about the opportunity for him to take a little bit of a break from preaching for a while, we we had a bit of a time of prayer and discussion as about what, what we would look at from the Scriptures. And we decided that we would spend some time looking at the Bible itself. The last four sermons from this pulpit have been around the Bible, and what is the Bible, and so on. And we're going to return to that very briefly at the end of the summer. And then the suggestion was that, as, as John has mentioned some years ago, we preached on the first four Psalms, and Nick very kindly said, well, why don't you pick the next four, and let's go from there. And I said, yes, of course, without looking at them first. <laughs> Had I looked at them a little bit more closely, I might have hesitated. And having read that Psalm so beautifully, John, I, I thank you very much for that. I think you realize why I might have hesitated. It's not an easy Psalm. David wrote more than 70 of the Psalms, we believe. And the first two were Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 that we looked at, as I said, a couple of years ago. And they were written at a very difficult time in David's life. His son son Absalom has rebelled against him. He's basically plotted a coup against his own father, the king. And he's managed to build up an army of followers, and David is running for his life. We don't know exactly where, but it appears he's hiding in the caves and the gullies somewhere north and east of Jerusalem. He seems to be within sight of the city, but he's hiding. And some of his faithful followers are with him, but he's scared. He's running for his life. You'll notice that Psalm 3, if you've got your Bible open, I think it's page 544 in the Pew Bible. If you've got your own Bible with you, it's right near the middle of the Bible. Psalm 3 is a morning psalm, it says. Psalm 4 is an evening psalm. 
And Psalm 5, again, is another morning psalm. And I like to think, and one or two commentators actually agree with me here, that it's possible that Psalm 3 was written one morning, Psalm 4 was written that same evening, and Psalm 5 the next morning. It's quite possible. And these psalms were written to be sung either in the morning or in the evening. Songs are primarily not poems as much as they are song lyrics. They were written to be sung. So what would happen is that folk would get together and they'd meet in the morning or in the evening and they'd gather a couple of musicians if they could find them. And in this case, it seems to be a musician who played the flute or some kind of reed instrument. And then they'd begin to sing soulfully or joyfully whatever the words were for that particular morning or evening. But where it starts to get a bit tricky is that this psalm, Psalm 5, is what we call an imprecatory psalm. An imprecatory psalm. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means it's a psalm in which the writer seems to describe a God quite different to the God we know. A God who is full of anger and a God who is full of wrath and a God who who deals punishment to sinners. And there are many passages like this in the Psalms and in the prophecy of Jeremiah, for example. I've just been doing some studies in the book of Nahum. There you find it again throughout. And these are difficult passages. But we need to consider one or two things. That these enemies that are described in these passages and these imprecatory Psalms are not just enemies of God's people, but they are people who have set themselves up against God himself. In the very first covenant we have with Abraham, right in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 12, in the first few verses, God promises to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. Do you know what he says next? I will curse those who curse you. And so when the Jewish people at the time were praying to God to to deliver them from their enemies and to punish their enemies, all they were doing was holding him to part of his covenant promise. You see, God is love and God is light. And in his loving holiness and in the the blazing purity of 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 his love and his light, he's got to deal with sin. And sin is not an abstract concept. It doesn't exist out here somewhere. Where is sin? It's inside the heart of you and me. So if God needs to deal with sin, he needs to deal with people. Ever since the fall of man and woman in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, there's been a battle going on between good and evil, between justice and injustice, between right and wrong. And the Bible writers, and we as well, cannot, can't be neutral in this battle. It's C.S. Lewis in his reflections on the Psalms that says this, and I quote from him. He says, If the Jews cursed more bitterly than the neighboring pagans, this was, I think, in part because they took right and wrong more seriously. For if we look at their complaints, we find they are usually angry, not simply because these things have been done to them, but because these things are manifestly wrong and are hateful to God as well as to the human victim. And again, those of us who find these imprecatory psalms uncomfortable and very difficult, we have to realize, as I've said before, they do appear again and again. These claims, these oracles, calling God to judge and 
destroy enemies. And it's not just in the Old Testament. We see it in the words of John the Baptist. We see it even in the words of Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter three, uh, chapter 23, rather, Jesus is, is railing against the religious leaders of the time. He's giving them a series of terrible woe statements, if you like. And he says, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of dead and everything unclean. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all of this will come upon this generation. Not very loving words. And that prophecy came true, because there's been a few years, maybe 30 years of that. In the agency of the Roman army from 19, about AD 68 to AD 70, the temple was, was, was flattened and many, many Jewish people were killed. It's hard stuff. But maybe, maybe part of it is because we don't hate sin enough to get upset at the evil and the wickedness and the ungodliness around us. I read an essay by a, a particularly uh, eloquent writer the other day who said this, and it's caused me to do a great deal of thinking. We will never learn, he says, we will never learn to love as God loves until we learn to hate as God hates. He goes on to say, bombarded as we are today by much evil and violence and godless behavior, maybe we've gotten too accustomed to the darkness. More about this in just a minute. Let's get into the psalm. Have your Bibles open with, with me, please. Psalm 5, or have you got a pew Bible there, please? Have it open. The psalm is, is divided into a series of five stanzas, I think, as you can see them, five verses, if you like. Um, one to three is one section, four to six is another section, then we've got seven and eight, nine and ten, and eleven and twelve in that particular order. And to, this, this morning we're going to look particularly at the first two parts, and then say a few a brief things about the last part, because it gets a little bit repetitious, if you like. So let's have a look at verses one to three. What to three is all about the morning. This is a morning psalm. So let's imagine then that Psalm 3 was written, say, on a Monday morning. And on that Monday morning, David wakes up to the realization, to the ever-present shadow of the surrounding enemy. And while the physical danger is bad enough, it's the psychological and the emotional trauma that's even worse. And in that psalm, Psalm 3, David splits his time between addressing God in prayer and worship and then submitting pleas to God for his deliverance. Then that evening, in Psalm 4, we see David uh, where nothing has changed. The danger is still there, but I love the end of that psalm because David, despite all of this, is going to have a really good night's sleep. I love this. He says, in, in, in peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. And that's where Psalm 4 leaves us. The next morning, we have Psalm 5. And he starts like this, Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, 
I lay my requests before you, and I wait expectantly. You see immediately the names that are given to God here. The person that he addresses, Lord. Whenever you see Lord written with capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, because it's not always written like that. When it's written that way, that's the English translation, if you like, of the word Yahweh or Jehovah. So this is the everlasting God, the God who said, I am who I am, the creator of the universe. And then he uses another word. He uses the word God, which is Elohim, which is a more general word which speaks of of God. It's a word which could be used to speak of gods with a small g as well, but this is he's speaking particularly to his God. And then he talks about God as his king as well. Lord, God, King. I wonder sometimes why people pray to anything else. Why would you bother to pray to anyone else when you can pray to the Lord, God, the King? Why would you pray to a mountain or a tree or a dead man or a dead woman when you can pray to the Lord, the King, the God of all heaven and earth? And what a mindset this must give us as we enter into prayer. We're addressing the God of creation, the one who always was and always is and always will be, the king and ruler of the universe. How does that affect the choice of words we use when we pray? Our spirit of expectation, the very tenor of our approach. Boy, if you're like me, you sometimes, you sometimes find yourself praying to a God is sometimes too small, too distant. Sometimes, on the other hand, we pray to a God who's too familiar or too aloof. He is Lord. He is King. He is Almighty. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. And the meaning here is for Yahweh, Jehovah, to listen to his sighing, to his, his musing, his groaning. Can you grasp that? This is not some agony, aunt. This is the Lord Jehovah that David is pouring out his groanings and his sighings to. This is what David is saying. He's saying to the Lord of the universe, this feeble, deposed Jewish king is saying to the king of all the universe, the king of all the kings, please, Lord, look into my deepest thoughts and into the depths of my heart and my mind. Look, Lord, beneath my words, because my words are always inadequate. Isn't it so true when we when we pray that our words seem so inadequate. And some of us are so reluctant to pray out loud in a group or or before the congregation because we're concerned about how our words may come out. The good news here is that God looks beneath the words. The efficacy of our prayer is beneath the words. And it's the morning watch notice. This kind of military term, uh, 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 term here, where David has taken for himself the guard duty in the morning, as it were. It's always a better duty to do the morning watch than the middle of the night. Believe me, I was in the military long enough to know the morning duty is the best one, by far. So David is, is up early, he's, the dawn is just breaking, and, and David is already on his knees. And everything in nature is coming to life, and people around him, the few followers that he has, are beginning to stir reluctantly. And he says, in the morning. And again, in the morning. Confession time. Anyone like me not a very good morning person? Yeah, that's me. 
But the effort to start the day with one's mind centered for a few quality moments on God and his word makes sense, and I believe it pays benefits. Why? Because morning is the time of expectation. Nothing's happened yet. The late afternoon and the evening where all the expectations have been fulfilled or met. The morning is the time to look up and look ahead. And David says, I lay my requests before you in the morning and I wait expectantly. In the morning we look up. And then the rest of the day we look around and we see God at work. And when David says, I lay my requests before you, he's using a very special kind of language. He's using the language that talks of laying out a table, as it were preparing a meal, or even laying out a a specific sacrifice. It's a careful and a thoughtful act. And as I read this, I thought, boy, again, the carelessness, the carelessness of so much of my praying the rattling off of a prepared list, unthinking rotor of requests that so many of them are pretty selfish, the lack of any real investment in what we're praying for. David says, prepare carefully as if you were preparing a meal for an important person. Don't rush in and lay out the cheap cutlery or food that hasn't been carefully and lovingly prepared. Come to the king with a menu of requests that really touches your heart and his. Requests that he will want to listen to. Requests each and every one that will bring him glory and extend his rule. Boy, sometimes we can be a bit careless. Of course, sometimes prayer is, and very often, prayer is spontaneous. We don't have time to prepare for a long prayer. We know that. Of course, that's often the case. But we need to think carefully sometimes about what we pray. Let's move on to what one commentator called the ugly part. The ugly part. Verses 4 to 6. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. A bit of an understatement. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies, the bloodthirsty and the deceitful. You, Lord, detest. You notice the crescendo of those verbs. It starts with God is not pleased and the sinners are not welcome. Then it moves on to they cannot stand. Then it moves on to hate. Then destroy and detest. The words get stronger and stronger and stronger as the verses follow. And we get into one of these subjects then that David is praying about this particular morning. He's praying for justice. And we can see why if we remember the situation in which he finds himself. He's in exile in his own kingdom. But this is not a plea for personal revenge. It's not a personal vendetta. David is not asking God for personal retribution. This may be a small part of it. But he's he's praying for something else. Praying that God would bring justice. Have you ever been in somebody's home and, and noticed the lovely plaques people have on their walls? Maybe a photograph with some words. And very often they're from the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd. It's one of our favorites. What a lovely psalm that is. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son on a plaque. Or cast all your care upon him for he cares for you. 
Or come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Wonderful promises. How many of us would put Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6 on a plaque in our living room? But they're scripture. They're hard words speaking of a difficult and a trying doctrine, the wrath of God. A God who can be angry. A God who can hate and destroy evil. Here we have David as a victim. Or better still, he's an attorney for the defense, pleading not his own innocence, not his own righteousness, but he's asking the kingly judge to pronounce judgment on his, the judge's, enemies. So, and I say this very, I say this very carefully, I believe we may indeed plead with our God and King and judge of the world to destroy evil in the world. Even though in the destruction of evil it may inevitably mean that evil men and women may be destroyed. And we make this plea not claiming to ourselves be in any way innocent. We're not free from sin. Never can be in this life. Sometimes we are as rebellious at times as those who don't even claim to believe. And it's only through God's mercy and grace that we are in a position to plead in this way. What kind of evil is David pleading against? And there are a number of words that are used here. You've got them there in front of you. Wicked and evil, those who do wrong. General terms for those who have turned their backs on God and gone another way. People who know God's written commandments, and certainly that applies to David's enemies at the time. They were Jewish people. They knew God's commandments, but they'd chosen to disobey those commandments. Then there are the liars and the deceitful and the arrogant. People who know the truth and make a choice not to speak it. Deceitful is just a much stronger term here than the word liar. And it becomes clear that way back then, even now in 2017, there are these enemies of God who are not enemies because they're ignorant, but because they are deliberately rebellious. They know what God expects, but they choose to distort the truth and urge others to do the same. And we see it so often in some of the pseudo-Christian sects that we see around about us, in some of the New Age movements that use a lot of God words and spiritual terminology, but are twisting the truth of God's word. And then there are the bloodthirsty. And along with the deceitful and the liars, these are hated, abhorred, detested by God and will be destroyed. And in David's day, much to David's horror, this would include his own son Absalom, who already has blood on his hands. Absalom has already killed his own brother Amnon. They're after David's blood, you see, and if they caught him, they would have killed him. His kingly status wouldn't wouldn't have saved him. And they would have killed everyone with him, women and children as well. You and I don't need to go far today to see bloodthirsty men and women marauding across almost every country in the world. There's no sign of it ever getting much better. In fact, my reading of the book of Revelation suggests that maybe it'll get worse. Time is coming when blood will be shed. But what's our response to all this then? How do, we, how do we take this? What do we do with this? 
as David was 3,000 years ago. We are, we are believers in the camp of the righteous. We're set apart by the grace of God as ambassadors of the truth and the love and the light of God. And it seems that as it was in this psalm and in many other places, we were entitled, maybe even encouraged, to call upon God to exercise his perfect justice in his timing to destroy evil in the world. But the church today, I'm afraid, there appears to be an eerie silence when it comes to talking about the wrath, the hatred, the anger, the justice of God. Commentator R.P. Hansen puts it this way. He says, Many preachers and most composers of songs and prayers today treat the Bible doctrine of the wrath of God very much like the Victorians treated sex. It's there, but it must never be alluded to because it is, in an undefined way, shameful. God is love, therefore it seems we should not associate him with wrath and anger. God is love, therefore we assume that he is infinitely tolerant. Presumably presumably it is for such reasons that so many Christian churches in the 21st century have turned their backs upon the doctrine of God's wrath. It wasn't always like that. I've just finished doing a little bit of reading in the works of a probably, I think, America's greatest mind, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, a philosopher, but most of all a preacher of God's word. And unfortunately, in a sense, Jonathan Edwards will be remembered from the 1730s, 1740s, 1750s for preaching one particular famous or infamous sermon, depending how you see it. It was a sermon that had such an impact on that part of New England, the northeast part of the United States, that thousands upon thousands came to Christ. Thousands upon thousands, day after day. He preached the same sermon day after day. It was two hours long and he read every word of it. And it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Here's an excerpt. This is Jonathan Edwards. The The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart. And strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps that arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. This is the God who holds you over the pit of hell. He abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like a fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else. And it is nothing but his gracious hand that prevents you from falling any moment into the fiery pit. Two hours of that. Two hours of that. You'd have to travel far and wide to hear a sermon like that today. Today, the doctrine of God's wrath, unfortunately, in some cases, denied altogether. Folks say it's an Old Testament doctrine. It belongs in the Old Testament, and that's where it all it all to stay. It doesn't appear in the New Testament. Well, that's just not true. There's far more mention of hell in the New Testament than there is of heaven. The doctrine is still there. Now, of course, it's absolutely right that we emphasize and we speak to our friends and those around us of the wonderful love of God. That's what we call to do. That's what preaching the gospel is all about. We talk about God's love and mercy at every opportunity. 
And something else maybe I need to say is that, of course, words like wrath and hate and anger are, in a sense, what we call anthropomorphisms. That simply means that they are words that we use to describe God, but they're human terms. They're the only terms we have, you see. We can't describe God in divine terms because we've only got human terms. So we use words like hate and wrath and anger because we understand them. But God doesn't hate as we hate. God is not angry the way we're angry. His wrath is not like our wrath, which is vengeful and selfish. Does God love people? Of course he does. John 3.16 and a thousand other scriptures tell us that. But will God punish those who reject him? Yes, he will. And while we ask God to show us his love and his mercy, we are right to ask him to be just and to deal with the ungodly as they deserve and as they deceive and, and shed blood of God's people in so many parts of the world. But let's finish with just a few thoughts about the f- final few verses of this, this psalm. Notice when you get to verse 7, there's an abrupt change. And it's normally the word but that gives us that. But I, says David, he's making a real change here between him and his righteous followers and the, the, the enemy, the, the liars and the bloodthirsty people he's been talking about. It's totally different. David's in a different place. He's hiding in a dirty little cave. Listen to what he says. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence I bow down towards your holy temple. What a contrast now. Now, of course, some people say, ah, there's a problem with this verse. Some of you may have noticed already. David's talking about the temple. There wasn't one. There wasn't a temple in those days. How do you know that? Because his son Solomon built the temple some years later. So some of the newer translations, in fact, some of the latest translations suggest that, and they're absolutely right. I checked this and I double-checked and I treble-checked it. The word temple is used in other parts of the scriptures as the same word as tabernacle. Or it sometimes just means house. So I believe the correct interpretation here is that David is saying, I'm going to get out of this mess and I'm looking forward to the day when I can bow down once again in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And that time would come. So what do we see David praying in these last few verses? Well, in verse 7 and 8, he prays for guidance. But I, by your great love, can come into your house in reverence, and I bow down towards your holy temple. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. He's praying for guidance. And David makes it clear that when he does come into God's presence, he does it with the same kind of awe and respect that the Levites, the priests, might have done. There's no room for flippancy or cuteness in his worship of the Almighty. There's no room for raucous emotionalism, just as there's no room for cold and frigid formalism. David simply says, and I love the way he puts it, I bow down. One of the best descriptions of worship that I know. Not necessarily meaning you have to get physically on your knees and bow your head, but it's that, 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 that sense of worship. I simply bow down and I acknowledge the greatness and the goodness of God. 
a privilege to be able to bow down. And David knows if he's ever going to see the restoration of his kingdom, he's going to need some clear guidance. This earthly king is going to have to speak to the king of all kings and the master kingdom builder and say, help me here, Lord. And I love the way he, do, he does it. Look carefully. Do you hear him say this? Lord, make my way straight before me. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Lord, make your way straight before me. And he says to God, do this in your righteousness. That's what praying for guidance means. Lord, thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. I think sometimes we ask for guidance when really what we want is a rubber stamp on the way we think things ought to go. David sets us straight. Lord, make your way straight before me. So he prays for guidance. And secondly, in in verse 10, we'll see he prays for God's justice. So he returns for a moment to his earlier theme from verse 4 to 6. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. So he's going back again to that that original theme. And verse 9, not a word from their mouths can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. And with their tongues they tell lies. So we have a clearer, a clearer picture of who these people are. And you notice the emphasis on the organs of communication, if you like. The mouth, the throat, the tongue, the heart, the mind. I can't help but be reminded of that arch-villain of all arch-villains back in the Garden of Eden who used his voice his mouth, his tongue, to deceive that first man and first woman. That initial flattery, that clever speech, that lying tongue, and all the pain and suffering that that involved. He he calls the lying throat an open grave. And that's the same word as the word sheol, which means the grave, the place of the dead. The one who has this lying throat, that throat is like a, like a grave. There are a lot of words out there today. I've been listening to some debates between some of the atheists and uh, some of the great Christian scholars of our day. Heard recently William Lane Craig debating so beautifully. Alistair McGrath from Oxford. John Polkinghorn and others, standing up and and speaking against the many words that the very evangelistic atheists have today. They're, They're full of words today. They're very bold. They even write on London buses, don't worry, there is no God. (laughs) Relax, take it easy. Oh, I tell you something. The psalmist says in Psalm 14, it is the fool who says in his heart, There is no God. And David's totally justified in this prayer. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins. And finally, in verse 11 and 12, he's prayed for guidance, he's prayed for justice, and now he prays for God's blessing. Remember where he is. He's in a dirty little cave. Probably hasn't had a chance to eat much or wash much and there's... A few people around him and they're standing guard because 
They don't know where the enemy is. They're running for their lives. And this is why this language is so precious. But, there it is again. But, let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. What a prayer to pray in those circumstances. God's great plan for his chosen people is to protect them. There is still much history to come after David. The kingdom cannot stop right there. There is still so much that has to happen. And I believe there is still much today that has to happen with that nation of Israel. There is still much that God has in store for them. And notice the almost military type language that is used once again here. Taking refuge, spreading your protection, surrounding them with your favor like a shield. Very military type language. We see this refugee warrior king using language when requesting God's blessing. But then what about, what about you and me today? Can we see ourselves taking refuge in God? From whom? Why do we need refuge? Can we see ourselves asking God to spread his protection over us? Against what? And can we see how good and uh, how God might surround us with his favor like a shield? Why do we need a shield? We aren't quivering in a cave, standing guard in the dawn, awaiting some enemy attack, surrounded on all sides by those intending us no good. Or are we? Are we, maybe? I hate to say this, but I'm, I'm trying to put it to bed once and for all, if you like. We don't live in a Christian country anymore. We live in a pagan country with pagan morals and increasingly pagan legislation on the legislation books. We're aliens in a foreign land, you and I as believers, citizens of another kingdom, here as ambassadors, not citizens, temporarily resident here but never belonging. And we don't get all hung up on Brexit or not Brexit, not our kingdom. We don't get all hung up on this political party or that political party. Why not? It's not our kingdom. And while we pray as we're commanded for those in government over us, we never bow down in subservience to any other majesty but the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't worship at any other altar. We don't worship at the altar of celebrity or the altar of power or the altar of wealth. We worship only at the altar of our king. So here we are. We pray for guidance. We pray for justice. And we pray that God's blessing will cover us in the day of our temptation, in the day when we may be snobbed or cursed, in the day even of our being oppressed or even persecuted for our loyalties that lie elsewhere. We are under God's divine protection and we have his promise of eternal rest with him. And so I leave the beginning and the last words of the psalm again with you. 
Maybe there's a memory verse in here somewhere. You know memory verses. They're always good things. The beginning of the psalm, he says, Listen to my words, O Lord. Consider my lament. Consider my groaning, my, my meditation. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for it's to you I pray. And then he ends by saying, But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Lord, spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you, no matter what the circumstances. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as a shield. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I I want to thank you even for the hard bits. I want to give you praise and honor for the difficult parts because they, these difficult parts throw us back on you in faith and trust. They throw us back on you to search your mind, to find out what it is that you're trying to say to us even through these difficult parts of your word. My prayer this morning is, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts through this psalm that we may understand your business in the world at this time. We may understand where we are and what we need. And most of all, we would know that you have spread your favor across us and around us and about us like a shield. And for that, we give you thanks. For Jesus' sake, amen.